I've been wanting to revisit the equity release sector since I did a review of it in the first half of this year on behalf of Responsible Life. So I'm delighted to bring you this conversation with Jim Boyd, Chief Executive of the Equity Release Council. I hope you enjoy listening. Okay, Jim Boyd from the Equity Release Council, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully we won't have any more technical issues. Uh, I just wanted to, I'm really keen to talk about the work of the Equity Release Council and, and the equity release market in general, because I think it's a really interesting sector. So you and I worked together on annuity business back in the early, I guess in the early 2010s. And then a few years ago, I thought I saw you'd arrived at the Equity Release Council. Just so just tell me a little bit about that, how, how you ended up there and how, how's it going? Well, as you know, I spent quite a few years working in financial services, largely for challenger brands, uh, specialist insurers like uh, Britannic Retirement Solutions, Just Retirement, which I launched, then Partnership Assurance. And then ultimately, as a result of pension freedoms, there was the ultimate defensive merger and then afterwards, I, I sort of spent a year working as an expert advisor in the DWP with Lord Freud, who is welfare reform minister in the House of Lords, and then subsequently to Caroline Noakes, who had the same position in the House of Commons. I had a really fascinating time getting to understand how government worked from the inside, and then spent a year working for Reform Think Tank, who's um, head of research and deputy director, which was uh, a a role that uh, Liz Truss had before. And obviously, my fascination at this time was sort of issues of ageing. And when the opportunity arose to apply to see if I could become chief executive of Victory's Council, it was an opportunity I grabbed with both hands because I've got a huge belief that property has a key role when addressing, you know, the major socialist issues of our day. And and we'll come on to that. So having briefly had a foray into working inside the DWP myself, not not to the same extent as you did. Um, I, I'm interested to hear from you, how, how did you find that compared to working in those kind of challenger startup financial services businesses? I mean, the DWP is a big machine, right? Well, you see, I was, I was incredibly lucky because I was working with an unbelievably ins- inspirational leader in terms of David Freud. And obviously, Caroline Noakes was excellent. When I went in, I, I'm afraid I sort of had really picked up very much the, the dogma that uh, the civil service is sclerotic and unhelpful mm. and not seeking to support uh, ministers to achieve their aims. Actually, my experience couldn't have been anything more different. I, I worked with the most extraordinary, industrious, assiduous, hardworking people who had this unbelievable capacity for hard work. And I was incredibly lucky to work with David Freud because he's not a politician per se. He's a man who's used to developing enormous projects in the private sector. And he bought that sort of can-do attitude and that inability to see hurdles, but always looking at new solutions and being hugely innovative and very much trusted by the people who work with him. So so possibly I, I had an atypical experience, but it was very positive. So then you went on to, how would you describe reforms? Is it like a think, t- think tank? Yeah, yeah it's uh, the, the leading think tank. Well, you know, all think tanks think that they're the leading think tank, but it certainly <laughs> had an extraordinary reputation for public service reform. And again, it's uh, a fascinating place because it's an incubator, not just for some of the ideas which influence government thinking. 
but also it's an incubator for these extraordinary people who embed themselves within the body politic. Mm. So many of the people there went on to become special advisors to secretaries of state or to work into number 10. But, but again, it offers another insight at uh, you know, the whole process of policy formation and actually how to develop successful policy. And it's an important lesson to keep on thinking about the aims of what you're doing. I mean, a critical thing for me, having actually spent many, many years in the private sector, is making sure that policy is practical, it's proportionate to the issue, and actually not to lose sight of people, because it's very easy for policy to take place in a vacuum. And uh, it's equally easy for people to lose sight that actually the whole purpose of policy is to provide better systems for human beings. Uh, yes, indeed. Although that's what good government is. That's that's what I think most politicians aspire to. So you went to the Equity Release Council, definitely a challenge to take on. The whole sector has has some history and had some reputational issues. It's evolved quite a lot. What does it look like today? What's, what's your assessment of how it's progressed and, and where it is on its journey? Yes, well, I do think that the sector is is a transformed place. People look at Ectoris as an area which is still having to cope with the reputational overhang from about the 1980s for over 30 years. But when I look at the modern Ectoris market, the sector, I see a transformed market. I see for me, products which are hugely innovative and extraordinary in terms of the way that people are seeking to develop all sorts of flexibilities to help consumers. I see great controls and standards. I see a culture which is uh, very much consumer focused and talking to people, a culture with, you know, a culture underpinning the sector where people find it enormously satisfying because of the benefit that these products can develop for people in, in later life. You know, if you, I, I spoke to one financial advisor who said the satisfaction of knowing they could make a, a significant difference to somebody's well-being actually made a huge impact on them. And when I talk about innovations and protections, I think certainly one report uh, recently it was saying that the pensions market would do well to look at all those sorts of innovations which are coming from our space. And the only other thing I'd say is that, um, you know, it's a market which in, enjoys an incredibly low level of complaints. If you look at the Financial Ombudsman Service, they've only had five upheld published complaints this year. And if you compare that on, on any metric to different sectors, it's a reflection of a market which seems to be trying to do the right thing. Even though I do appreciate that certainly for our, our products, uh, because they're so they're, they're designed to be such long-term products that you know obviously if there is a complaints overhang, that will happen in fifteen to twenty years as well. So it's really important we get it right now. So what does the Equity Release Council membership look like today? What does what does the council look like in terms of the composition of the members, the lenders, the intermediaries, and talk a bit about the standards element of that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th I think taking a step back for people who don't know, the Actuaries Council is the representative body for the UK as a release sector, but we're also a standard setter, a voluntary independent regulator. So there's an inherent tension within that, but it makes it a, a fascinating and interesting organisation. But before looking at the absolute composition, I, I suppose we do represent all the parts of the value chain, all the major participants, which is a differentiator for us. And I do think the fact that we have such a consumer-centric approach on the council 
acts as a differentiator between us and other, let's say, mortgage trade associations. And I'm just delighted that the council's brand and logo is now widely accepted as a kite mark for stronger standards in, the se in, in, in our sector. In terms of size, our membership, we've got about 1,850 individual members, and that's largely a proxy for financial advisors. And we've got just under 750 firms. But if you compare that to when I joined, and th this isn't a reflection of me joining the council in 2018, but a reflection on the need for the council and for what it's doing. When I joined, we had 219 member firms. So we've more than doubled the firms in the organization. We had 679 individuals. So we've seen a time of quite significant growth. And if you actually look from when the Actuaries Council was set up in about 2012, and it's past the evolution for the safe home income plans set up in 1991, we've seen a 13 and a half times growth of member firms. So looking at what we have here, we've got all the major providers, the Vivas, the Legal and Generals, the Candidlifes, the Scottish Widows, the Peers, the Mortalifes, and so forth. We have major funders, PIC, Rothsay, Phoenix, the Reinsurance Group of America. We have lawyers, intermediaries from networks all the way through to organizations like St. James's Place, and then to st uh, Step Change Financial Services, and then other mortgage professionals. And actually in, in this year, we've enjoyed the membership of organizations like Deloitte, Ernst & Young, Willis-Tars, Watson. We have surveyors like ESERV. So literally all those incredibly good people. So a couple of quick questions on that. So first of all, you talked about the providers and the funders. Just for, for people who might not be familiar with how the equity release manufacturing side of the product chain works, just explain the difference there. What's going on there? Well, funders is a broad term. So you, in, in effect, uh, equity release requires capital, which is then transferred through the contract to the individual who would like to benefit from it. There are two sources of it. You can either actually have organisations like RGN Rossi who are looking for, for homes to sort of to, to invest good long-term secure investments. And that's one source. And the other source, of course, would be the major insurance companies, if you're looking at Legal and General Aviva, for example. And as a result of their bulk purchasing work, where they are, in effect, receiving significant uh, lumps of cattle from major corporates to, in effect, provide annuities for mm -hmm. their workforce, they are themselves looking for great sources of long-term investment, which can match their liabilities for their the, the annuitants that they're looking to support on the other side of that particular relationship. So I hope that's, you know, not too confusing, but ultimately uh, people who are looking for long-term sources of investment, which are reliable and for the major insurers you know, in effect, lives which match their obligations when they're meeting their requirements under big bulk de-risking schemes. Thank you for that. So the other question that sprang to mind as you described the, the, the council and its membership is, what's your coverage of the sector? So clearly it's expanded very significantly in recent years. How many more firms are there outside the fold? In terms of major providers, none. In terms of advisors, we have about probably 1,500 but if you look at how many contracts are written, maybe just one extra lease contract, obviously by a regulated advisor, because you can't operate in the sector unless you're regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Mm -hmm. 
then probably three to four thousand individuals are operating within it. And you know, the people who write the vast bulk of the contracts obviously are our members, but there will be people who will be maybe writing one a year. And I was going to ask you about that. What's your sense of the kind of distribution of the distribution? Is it is it concentrated in in like the experts do most of it, and then you get the occasional contract elsewhere? Or is there a long tail of advisors who might be doing one or two cases a year? Well, I think that there are going to be a most half the advisors in the market will probably write about one a year, whereas actually the majority will be written by the major players, the household names, and obviously there are many specialists out there as well. So you mentioned SHIP, Safe Home Income Plans, and how that started back in the early 90s. And I remember Andrea Rosario, um, and I remember Nigel Waterson was involved as well at one time, wasn't he? The, Mm. The former Conservative MP for Eastbourne. That was set up in response to the kind of issues the sector was experiencing back then. I mean, I guess a key evolution has been the standards, which you, you referenced in passing. So can just just talk a bit about the standards and, and why how that came to be and why that was so important? Yes, well, I mean, actually, when I talk about the standards, actually, that'll give you an insight into the nature of the products, which had caused the problems. And this still enduring legacy from the 1980s. And those are products which are poor value and, and not focused on consumers. And there weren't any additional consumer protections at the time. So the standards which were introduced at the time were product standards. And actually, the the group of people who introduced those, I believe, were geniuses because they're very clear and they're they're still understood very clearly nowadays, which is is no no mean feat. The first one is uh, the no negative equity guarantee. And that means that consumers can never own more than they own. And that's obviously very important. It gives huge peace of mind to people in retirement. There's an option, a right to move to another property subject to lender criteria. And obviously, that's something which uh, people welcome enormously. And I say subject to lender criteria, the property people have to move to, obviously have to be capable of being underwritten. You can't move to a yurt, for example, and hope you can transfer the contract. For each product, there's also a fixed or capped interest rate for each release. So... Again, that gives peace of mind. Uh, So, for example, if you took out a lump sum, then obviously whatever rate you fix that at, or if it was capped, if it was a a variable uh, rate, then you would have certainty for for the amount that's released that that would actually be fixed at that particular rate. Again, another, another area which gives huge peace of mind to individuals. And, of course, I think the most important one for me I think they're all really important, but it's the security of tenure one, which is the right to stay in the property until that, that person or the remaining spouse of the contract dies or goes into care. And uh, that, I believe, for anybody over the age of 55, 65, obviously is huge because um, the older you get, the greater anxiety people suffer. And the, the risk of actually having your house repossessed or thrown from it is an almost an unbearable risk for people. And, and just to say, we've introduced this year the first new product standard in 30 years after significant consultation of our members. And that is that our members have the option to, to make a partial repayment of a loan without penalty subject to lender criteria. And even though it was reflecting very much the direction that the industry was going in, it was just so excellent for the council to be able to bake that in. 
And actually nothing could be more valuable at the moment if people are looking at uh, managing that sort of long-term risk of being in, in any contract. The ability to be able to sort of pay down elements of that loan obviously gives peace of mind and helps people control that debt. So the, the timing was absolutely excellent. My instinct is probably most people won't make use of that. Do you have any data on you know, how common it is for people to come back to their lender subsequently and say, no, look, actually, I want to... I pay down this debt that they borrowed from you? Well, I mean, what we're seeking to do is actually gather information about all of these standards just to work out what they mean and how people are using it. Anecdotally, I say anecdotally because I can't remember the exact figures, but last year, I think many tens of millions of pounds were paid off before, and that has an impact not just on the debt, but you know, interest which accrues from it. But that's something that, you know, all the time I'm trying to sort of gather information that I'd be very keen to report on on an annual basis. One of the things that surprised me when I looked at the sector early this year was to find that there are still contracts being written today, not many, but some, where the early redemption charge that applies in some cases as a defined terms in the contract, that if you, if you want to pay off some of your debt early, there's a charge for doing that. That those redemption charges were linked to guilt yields and therefore absolutely unpredictable from the consumer's point of view going into the contract. I mean, it was a lottery for them what the rate would be at the time when they came to make a repayment. Um, I'm thinking ahead to consumer duty. I mean, I'd, I'd struggle to see how that that's going to continue to be acceptable. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Absolutely. You, you make a very good point. It was raised at our summit as one of those areas which you know, we have to look at very, very closely because obviously a, a key feature of the consumer duty is that the consumers actually understand the, the contract they're actually entering into and uh, it, it reflects the benefit and the value they expect from it. Uh, probably the first thing to say about that is that actually if you look at the market now, nine out of 10 contracts offer a fixed early repayment charge. So it sets out incredibly clearly what that is. And typically that means that if somebody is to sort of leave the contract early, and like any long-term mortgage, all the lenders will require an early repayment charge. It sets a point when that repayment charge will go down to zero. But obviously it gives clarity, and that's in 90% of all products at the moment. But uh, yes, it, it will be up to the people who still look at that as a mechanism to be satisfied that they can communicate that uh, clearly uh, in a way that consumers understand. Obviously, I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, consumer duty and the work that the FCO are doing in this space. Yeah, um, and, and to be fair, most of them that I looked at, it was, it was tapering down over, say, a 10-year period and reducing to zero. So um, one, one of the other things that surprised me looking at the market was the, the relative absence of what, what I would have thought would have been the most obvious product type, which is an income arrangement. I think a lot of people look for equity release to supplement their income in retirement. There's actually very few products that do that. Typically, it's a lump sum or a drawdown. And can, can you talk a bit about that? And um, I appreciate there are challenges and complexities from a manufacturing point of view, but there seems to be an unfulfilled consumer need there. Well, again, I think you make a, an incredibly good point. I mean, certain income products make huge amounts of sense in theory. And actually, these are products that people clearly will want. The real problem is the practicality is that when an income product is in place, it has an impact on benefits. 
And so when incomes received like that, it could mean that people's benefits are reduced. And so accordingly, you know, consumers will rely actually on drawdown, which because of the flexibilities will allow them to take out smaller lump sums in capital. But I think that as part of a rounded piece of work, we actually, and th this is something in, in your excellent report that you're mentioning, Tom, that, you know, certainly there's now a role for government right from the top to look at the role of property and make sure anomalies like this are focused and, and considered because it can't be in the government's best interest to penalise people for taking out an income product and then finding that there's a penalty for, for its use. Certainly that was something that struck me and surprised me was the apparent relative lack of coherent government policy in this space. And I mean, again, we shouldn't be too hard on policymakers. They're doing a difficult job and it's lots of moving parts. But you've referenced the kind of benefit trap throw in the costs of later life care and the uncertainties people experience around whether they're going to have to pay for that or not. And then you look at this overhang of this huge amount of wealth, you know, low trillions of pounds sitting in the hands of the retired population, mostly not being used other than to provide them with a home. And there appears to be you know, a compelling case to find ways to unpick that and to unlock that and to flow that into the economy and to flow that into their hands and improve their standard of living. It's, it's happening, but the turnover is only, what, sort of four or five billion pounds a year. It's relatively low, certainly compared to the amount of money flowing out of the pension sector. And it kind of begs the question, well, why? Why why, why isn't this happening? Why isn't somebody doing something about this? So just, and I, I know you are, but just talk to that point a bit, Jim. As, as you said, this is an extraordinary space. You know, actually, if you're looking at how people are, are using that funding, you know, there's an incredible source of wealth cascading into our economy already from what is, after all, an incredibly small sector. Just a, a, a quick point about that. There was legal and general research this last year, actually, which came out, I think, on the same day as, as your report from Lancats, which estimated that for every one pound of equity release, you know, released by equity release, over two pounds in gross value was added into the economy and actually resulted in 45,000 jobs coming directly from it. And a third of those 15,000 in, in the health and social work sectors. So this is uh, an extraordinary source of, of income and actually an extraordinary area where the government can actually only benefit from freeing up all of this trapped wealth, which for all those good, good purposes you've met to actually support care, to support sort of, you know, inadequate pension savings uh, and, and so forth. I suppose the question is, what are the things which are stopping the market? Well, Directly speaking, I still think there's that reputational legacy. There's a lack of trust in, in this segment, even though that is changing, but I think it's changing too slowly for its potential. There's actually a lack of knowledge in the products. And actually, I suspect there's a lack of trust in financial advice more broadly. And certainly from a reputational perspective, as I was saying before, I believe this is now transformed, and as I said before, is a brilliant product with great standards of controls. It's got incredibly low levels of complaints, but it still suffers from a legacy issue. And I think part of that actually is to, to do with, we've done some research into this, when people actually enter into a contract and have a good experience, they tend to look at it as a, as a private, private contract they've entered into it, and they will share it with their family maybe, but don't talk about it much. But those people who resist this as an option tend to be very vocal in, in explaining why they think it's a bad idea. I think there's a stigma about debt in later life. 
And I think it's just that concept that when people have spent their entire lives paying off a mortgage, the idea of actually entering into debt seems counterintuitive. But of course, that's changing significantly amongst younger cohorts. People from the age of 40 to 55 are now looking at debt in a very different way, where they're seeing that actually having a mortgage which prefers a right to actually own property actually is a very, very sort of, you know, appropriate way of accessing the extraordinary wealth which comes from it. And so I think that attitude to debt is going to change dramatically. And I suppose also for consumers, there's an inheritance concern, a fear that they're being selfish, that actually what they're doing is spending their children's inheritance. Whereas obviously, and you've referenced it in reports, many people are living far longer lives. And so at the time when those people are thinking about equity release, their children may be in their late 40s or 50s, and in many ways are set up because they're on the housing ladder, and in many ways might not need that inheritance, even though obviously for a lot of people, it's incredibly welcome. My, my last point, I suppose, is that it's still comparative of very, very small markets which few have used and few have advised on it. And that is part of the whole process of communicating the changes and, and the values which have come from it. No, I agree with all of that. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, that you know here we are 20, 30 years since the, the misdeeds of the past, but still that legacy reputation trails behind sector. And perhaps, yes, attitudes are changing and people's perceptions towards debt and later life are changing, but it's been pretty slow. Do you think that if, if we just carry on as we are, doing the good things that you're doing, that those attitudes will continue to evolve and we'll end up in a good place where it's it's kind of normalised and accepted? Or or is something more interventionist required to, to bounce this discourse along a bit? Well, I totally agree that, you know, this will change. It'll change. It will evolve by a combination of people's experience of it, changing consumer needs and greater, I'm not saying sophistication, but awareness of of the role of debt and actually the value of housing. But I, I personally believe we've now got to an inflection point because there are major societal issues which can be addressed with housing wealth at the moment. Anything from retrofitting homes, which uh, en enable people to live in warmer homes, but it's helped the government achieve its zero net carbon objectives. 20% of all carbon emissions come from housing, all the way from paying for care. There's a huge amount of unmet need. People want to have care in their own homes. They don't want to go to residential homes. And at the same time, this is the time when many, many, many people are having real cost of living crises and they haven't actually saved enough for a decent retirement. And if you look at the death of final salary pensions, which for me is quite shocking when you consider that DC pensions only pay 25% of that amount or actually only 15% of the final salary, pensions have died. And for those people who are lucky enough to have houses, there's only one place to turn. And I would say, as a result of all that, there's a need for a spur. And I believe that uh, there's a multi-tiered approach. I think there's a very important conversation to take place. And I think it has to take place with all the key stakeholders, from government, to the regulator, to the industry. And this is the time for it, actually. Well, I was going to come on to the FCA. Do you feel like the Treasury is listening? I think that the government recently has had an awful lot on its uh, on its plate. <laughs> <laughs> I met with the former economic secretary, the charming guy called Richard Fuller, and he was the economic secretary and then tax minister for 16 weeks. And in that time, he had three prime ministers and three chancellors. 
So it's very hard for government to actually focus on major issues when there's that upheaval. But I think the challenge for government is this. It's got to articulate approach to housing wealth, setting out a new empowering narrative for the role housing wealth can play in later life. And it has to do that if it if it's wishes to unlock this extraordinary amount of wealth, which can help it achieve these massive social needs. At the moment, having worked in DWP, I'm aware that you know all major departments work on very defined objectives. And there's such vast amounts of work they have to do that it's very hard for them to be flexible. But one thing I'd say is when you look at the Department for Work and Pensions, and it looks about pensions specifically for retirement, I think there's a need for a Department for Work and Retirement, looking at all assets. And uh, certainly, I'm sure that's something the Treasury would be hugely supportive of. But I do think we have to take that broader view. And one area that I've been calling for for a long time obviously is for a minister for the elderly, but rowing back on that a bit, what I'd love to see is within government, in the same way that Alok Sharma ran, in effect, a cross-government committee looking at environmental issues mm-hmm. for COP26. I think we need that for older people now, so that we can actually start looking in a far more cohesive way the needs for, for the government to look at this. Because make no mistake about this, in a few very few short years, our entire society is going to be completely turned upside down because of the demographic time bomb, Mm. which is washing through. In 2050, which is, you know, just a blink of an eye away from here, one in four people are going to be over the age of 60. And that means that every aspect of our lives are going to be different, whether it's the designed environment, whether it's builders following the Japanese model, where builders actually have mechanical exoskeletons to help them lift weights because they're living far later lives, all the way through to our dependency ratio and the pressure we're putting on our young. So we have to start looking at this now, because if we don't look at this now, then we'll leave it far too late. And there are far too many major structural issues which have to be grabbed now. Yeah, no, I agree with that. As you were talking then, in my mind came an image of the 2050 Rolling Stones tour and Mick Jagger and an exoskeleton going out on stage, still going. When I spoke to Stephen Timms on a recent podcast, we one of the things we talked about was whether there needs to be some kind of sort of standing body within government looking at the question of provision for later life as an advisory body to support government decision-making around. I mean, we were talking in the context of pensions, and you're talking slightly more broadly than that, but I think I think the same argument applies. I think it's interesting, you know, that's there's Stephen within the Work and Pensions Committee thinking along similar lines. I mean, I, I agree with you, and I agree with everything you said about the demographics as well. I, I think there's there's a need perhaps slightly to get out of the siloed thinking that is an inevitable consequence of the kind of ministerial structure that we have in the UK government. Well, I think it has to go broader than that as well. I mean, I wrote a blog when I was at Reform, and I've been hugely impressed by the New Zealand model, where there's actually an intergenerational commission where that commission takes these really complex decisions, hopefully out of the very short-termist approach of political thinking, and they start looking at a whole range of different issues across generations, because fairness is so critically important. And we're relying on the current system for the goodwill of the young through national insurance and direct taxation, in effect, to give a disproportionate amount of their wealth up to older generations who... Obviously, there's huge poverty amongst the uh, people in later life, but giving that wealth up to some people who, who do have extraordinary wealth and access to assets the young can dream of. Hmm. But in that case, they're looking at a whole range of different issues. So it's not just pensions or, or potentially the cost of care. They're looking at jobs. 
the built environment, housing, what they consider to be fair across generations, with recommendations then made through to government. So I do think we have to now look at these these structures which are looking at many more complex variables because we we can't just look in silos any longer. agree with that. Uh, Talking of silos, let's come back to the FCA. They put equity release regulation in a a little silo inside a mortgage silo. And they sort of, for good reasons, they treat equity release as as a debt because it is is a loan. It's It's a mortgage that just doesn't get paid off until after you die. But I think one of the things that strikes me is they, they therefore don't look really at your house as an asset as part of your wealth management. And I certainly am keen to see them just kind of broaden out how they treat, how they regulate equity release. So that, that was one of my takeaways from looking at the sector. But you, you've been here longer than me, so I'd be interested in your thoughts around the regulation of equity release. Well, I mean, you know what, I, I think there's going to be nobody who's looked at this market who isn't going to disagree with your your, your perspective. I mean, the regulator plays an enormously valuable role for us, and I, I re- really do value a proactive regulator. And it's certainly, obviously, later in life, as we call it. Obviously, consumers don't call it that yet, and it's a term which hasn't really been specced out. I think people have tried to define it. There was reports, again, when your report came out, the Legal and General report, which suggested that later life market was £120-odd billion, pounds, and UK finance thinks it's £27 billion. Pounds. But if you're looking at something so significant, then obviously proportionate and appropriate regulation for products is critical. Because if we're going to grow that market, we need to do it safely, but with good practice embedded. And that means more rounded later life lending conversations. And it's very hard to do that if you've got different mortgage silos. So as you said, you know, many advisors are working in silos. They're either looking at mortgages in one pocket, equity release another, or broader financial planning or wealth management in a different one, um, subject to different requirements. And obviously, referral arrangements are great, Mm. and that's really important, but they're not as widespread as they should be. So what I would advocate is obviously working with the regulators to look at ways that we can safely break down those silos. But I think, for me, there's definitely a two-pronged approach. And I say for me, so I was talking to the excellent John Dunkley, who's done a lot of work on this, and there are two sorts of areas that he'd advocate. The first is that the regulator breaks down. So, so in effect, we're looking at two sort of tranches of advisor. You've got obviously level four wealth managers. Mm. We look at investments and pensions. And then on the other hand, you have mortgage advisors and then level three equity release advisors. And one would look at the first group of people in terms of wealth managers. One would actually say, why don't you have to look at uh, property when you're looking at investment advice? And why shouldn't that be contained in a suitability report? I've given you investment advice, but I haven't actually looked at your property. And then to explain to them the role of property. So that's one tier of work. And all of this is, we're looking at navigating the environment we're in at the moment, where actually the vast number of people who deal an interface with, with the customers are mortgage advisors. And the last thing that those mortgage advisors would practically want to do is to completely overhaul their training, become yeah. multidimensional, holistic advisors. One, they wouldn't have enough time to give advice because of all the training they'd be receiving. And it wouldn't actually be meeting the needs of the market where mm. consumers want that good mortgage advice. But for that tier of advisors, what we need from them 
is an ability to know when to hand off in the right way and actually to have better better skills and better training so that they're aware of this extraordinarily vibrant market and hopefully one that they'd feel they'd want to spend time in. So for those advisors, we'd want to see why there's a difference between equity release and then the normal mortgage regulation, which includes RIOs. Surely one should be able to have broader rounded conversations across all of those. And I think that would be part of what we'd be looking at the regulator for. We'd be asking also as that with professional bodies, can we start training people and giving them more, let's say, enhanced training in terms of their basic qualifications so they can actually start understanding much more about the different issues? For example, a lot of extra release advisors are looking at when they're giving advice, an extra release council advisor would be required to look at a whole range of different issues, whether it's the impact on on the particular proposition, on inheritance, on benefits, on care provision, on longer and shorter term needs. This is the sort of evolutions I think all people working in the broader mortgage space should be aware of at the very least. And I think CPD programs should be taking place to support that as well. So that would be the way I'd be looking at this space, not thinking you should have a big bang approach, but you should be having a proportionate approach, bringing these different tiers of advisors together on a journey. So there's in time, they're taking into account property wealth in a much more cohesive way. But of course, the underpin for this is a broader, much more constructive narrative from government, uh, helping inform and advise consumers about these extraordinary options, which they can tap into rather than having to live lives in potentially grinding, grinding poverty. I agree with all of that. A couple of quick questions coming off the back of that. So for anyone not familiar with the jargon, just explain what a RIO is. Ah, that's retirement to interest any mortgage. And how does that differ from an equity release loan? Well, uh, it differs principally because if the person, first of all, you know, this was set up as uh, a, a way to make sure that people had interest in mortgages wouldn't fall off a cliff yeah. and discover that they had to sell their houses because they weren't able to pay so off. So this is um, for people rolling over house purchase loans? So. Yeah, exactly. The, the way they differ is that if that person who's taken out retirement interest in mortgage fails to make their payments, then potentially they can have the house repossessed. There's no security of tenure. And the issue there is that when people actually enter into those particular contracts, if they've got good pension income, that's fantastic. And they can actually meet the, the cost of that Rio, as we call it. But sadly, if one of the people dies, and typically it tends to be the male who typically mm. has the final salary pension, then all of a sudden the surviving spouse has the risk that um, they of affordability, they actually can't meet those payments. And obviously, nobody wants to be in a position where they're writing a contract where a vulnerable person at a moment of enormous crisis in their life also has the house repossessed. So it's a brilliant idea, but it just, you know, is one which sadly hasn't been, hasn't had a significant take up because of the anxiety of that particular consequence. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so the other question I wanted to just come back on the advisor qualifications. Just wanted to dig into that briefly. Would you... So you talked about kind of level three and level four. I mean, are you comfortable that equity release advisors should be able to continue operating at level three, or, or would you envisage a world in the long term where everyone gets raised up to level four? Well, it's a long, long, long way away from here. I mean, in, in a perfect world, which doesn't exist, <laughs> there would be level five or six advisors <laughs> floating around, giving actually T-file brain advice in the most mm-hmm. extraordinarily holistic way. But 
all I'd be looking for certainly would be at level three level, but I'd want to see that uh, qualification enhanced and supported by CPD so that all the time people with that level three, which is the equivalent of the first year of a degree, so yeah. it's a really good qualification to get, actually sort of ha- has much more refreshed material so that they're far, far better informed about the various options to hand off to specialist advisors. So, so I think there's a lot of work at that level just, just to bring it up to speed to reflect the modern market. And actually, let's not forget, equity release is one part of a broader market. We need to see lo- a lot more innovation in this space. We need to see hybrid products. We need to see uh, an innovation of all sorts of different sort of exciting products. And that level three has to take account of that. Yeah, agree. Okay, so I'm conscious of time. So I've got a couple of quick questions I just wanted to conclude with. So first of all, you just talked about product innovation. So home reversion plans have just completely dropped away. It's almost non-existent. It's all later life lending. Could you see a return for home reversion plans? Is there room for that in the marketplace? No, potentially. If you look at different markets, Typically, people take out a loan when the house prices or an asset is rising and they purchase or sell, sell a property or an asset when house prices are going down. So what a home reversion does, it gives absolute peace of mind to a person about what proportion of a property they own. Hmm. And obviously, if you're looking at far higher interest rates, then the returns or rewards on that are obviously higher too. So within that context, they're in a higher interest rates context, there could be an increased role or interest in home reversions. Okay, and that leads nicely onto the next question, which is around those interest rates. We've seen such a dramatic increase in rates in the last year. Uh, and I'm also conscious we might see rates starting to come down again next year. Slightly, slightly tentative suggestion there. But that creates a double overhang on the market. One, because deals look a lot less, less attractive than they did eight months ago. And also, two, because people might be thinking, well, I kind of want to do this, but I'll wait until next year because the terms will be better. So I'm just wondering how much of an impact the interest rate environment has had on, on the equity release market in, in the last few months. Certainly, anecdotally, it appears that an awful lot of people who are entering or going to enter into contracts have decided to, as you said correctly, take a step back to consider what this means. I mean, if you look at the actual market over the last few years, you saw the, the market growing until all of a sudden it flatlined, if that's the right word, at just below £4 billion. Mm. And a large part of that was driven by uncertainty. You had the Brexit vote, which frightened people. You had the Corbyn-Johnson election, which had a huge impact on people's perception of risk. And then obviously we had lockdown. And since then, we've seen the market return to that growth trajectory. And so I'd see in terms of consumer behavior, many people saying, well, actually, I would prefer to defer looking at this until maybe next year if people believe rates will come down. And that's certainly the way that people are being guided. And I can see that because these are designed to be long-term products. For many people, they're aspirational products. They, they actually have the luxury to be able to defer that decision until then. And to be fair, the advisors I've spoken to through the course of this year, doing various bits of work around this market, have all struck me as being very professional individuals who said, look, you know, I will only recommend a product if it's right for that client at that time. And I'm very happy to send people away if I think it's not the right moment for them. And I've been really encouraged to hear advisors talking in those terms. So final, final stakeholder I just wanted to visit who we haven't talked about was the money and pension service. And 
I'm just interested in your thoughts around that provision of free guidance and, and their relationship with the equity release market and whether you had any thoughts around that. Because, you know, we have this excellent pension-wise service for, for the pension sector and we have all these trillions of pounds in the housing sector. So, so, so what's the role for free government guidance in this space? Well, actually, we're doing a lot of work with the Money and Pension Service at the moment. We had a great meeting with uh, Sir Hector Sants at the beginning of the year, who set down a, a very powerful challenge to us. If we were going to be a mainstream market, then we had to exhibit the traits of a mainstream market. So, for example, one of which is that consumers really would have to be able to look at one source of information and be able to work out exactly what the charges and costs of our sector were. So he's given us that incredible challenge. But we've been working with them, actually looking at uh, discussing guidance and discussing the role of equity release. And there's an education process here as ever, you know, in the same way that pensions are looked at as a separate sort of source of, of retirement income. Many of the larger organisations don't actually include all assets, but that's um, a part of the journey we're going on with the Money and Pension Service at the moment. And I think they've got a number of very exciting initiatives coming out uh, next year. And hopefully, increasingly, the Royal Electorates will be considered within that. Recently, we've been able to brief all MAPS Money and Pensions uh, Service staff on equity release. We had, that was 120 people briefed by our incredible and fantastic risk policy and compliance team. And also the Money and Pension Service is going to be taking place in a webinar for our members, probably about March and April of next year. So I think they're really important. They get what we're trying to do. On the Money Helper website, they actually reference, proud to be a member of the Actuaries Council member endorsement mark as a way of guiding consumers to an organisation where members want to go above and beyond formal regulation. So there's certainly a willingness there to, to go on the journey with us. And I do think they're going to, um, you know, really deliver for the consumer as, as they look at different ways of actually helping them understand the options of equity release. Not least, I, I know I'm probably running out of time, but I, I went to a brilliant lecture from ILC UK Future of Aging conference, I think a week ago. And Sir Ian Diamond, in charge of the Office of National Statistics, was speaking. And this is a stat I had no idea about, but he asked how many women lived by themselves over the age of 60 and the answer came in 44.3 percent and many of those people will not be supported locally by informal sources of care and support and so for those people at the very least typically women will have dreadful pensions for well yeah. explained reasons but for that critical segment of vulnerable people there's recognition how on earth do we support and help them and they're the people who are least likely to look around for alternative sources of assets, even though, ironically, they might be the people who might have the homes. So certainly that's one of those discussions we've been having with the Money and Pension Service. And they they recognise how important this is. That's really interesting. That's kind of a cautiously positive note to finish on. Really struck by that statistic. That's uh, clearly a huge amount of work to be done there and for the sector to work with maps and uh, and other agencies um jim you've clearly got a lot of work to do but it sounds like you're doing good work so thank you very much for talking to me today well thank you very much i mean there's only one thing i haven't mentioned which i do think i ought to you you can cut this into your interview if you want (laughs) or not but when i was talking about the ship standards i was talking about the five product standards yeah but actually what we do have is an advice standard 
And in 2013, we demanded that independent legal advice was used. And that's critically important because I believe anyway, is because what that means is that it requires somebody to have independent advice so that they can, we can be satisfied that they understand the contract they're entering into. But more than that, under the Mental Capacity Act, the independent legal advisor can make determinations about capacity and also duress. And obviously, that's something more broadly, which is supported by excellent financial services support from advisors and also, obviously, from um, surveyors who are in that position. But I do think that is a unique standard. And it's something that we have to consider because as people enter into contracts through later life, they're potentially very much more vulnerable. That's why there's so many needs for so many different touch points to engage with people if they're going into sort of long-term contracts. So for the council, that's, I, I think, a very defining feature of, of what we require. Also, obviously, we, we try and ask everyone to engage all family members, but yeah. obviously we can't force people to do that. Yeah, no, and um, you know, the FCA rightly has focused a lot of attention on vulnerable customers. That came through again and again through the consumer duty work. And, you know, you talked earlier on about the low levels of complaints. I mean, I've heard elsewhere that where complaints occur quite often, it's from family members who, who weren't consulted when someone went into an arrangement and then some find to their surprise that that inheritance they thought they were going to get is not quite all, all that they'd hoped for because their parents took out an equity release in the past. But no, I, I recognise you guys are doing good work on making sure everybody's consulted and the consumers are well protected. Jim, thank you very much. This, I, th I, think, I think we better call a halt there. So thank you very much for talking to me today. Thanks very much, Tom. And, and thank you for your reporting on this. Yeah, it's been really helpful and really valued it. So there you go. As always, do leave a positive review if you feel so inclined. Please subscribe if you don't already. And if you've any thoughts or feedback about the podcast, then do get in touch. Thanks for listening.